Hello and welcome to Blair and Barker, the podcast, the Lockout Chronicles is the uh, the, the 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 subtitle for these podcasts. I'm only going to use it once. I promise. We're not going to spend all all the time talking about the lockout. It's Jeff Blair and Kevin Barker. Podcast drops every Thursday wherever wherever you get your favorite podcast. Kevin, we've got a great show ahead. Barry Axelrod, longtime player agent, joins us. Jordan Romano, Blue Jays closer, will be along as well. We'll find out what uh, Jordan is up to in the early stages of this lockout. Get his thoughts in the season, his thoughts in the Blue Jays as well. But to get us there, a couple of breaking items. Even though the lockout is in effect and nobody's signing anybody or 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 doing anything, I guess teams can still... Teams can still sign general managers and managers, but there, there are no player moves going on right now. We're kind of picking through the embers of stuff that happened leading up to the lockout. And our friend Jeff Passan uh, did a breakdown of that crazy, crazy billion dollar day in free agency. And amongst the items he puts out there, something that got our attention, got everybody's attention. The Blue Jays were very much in on Corey Seager. Now he ended mm-hmm. up signing 10 years uh, with the Texas Rangers, we don't know necessarily what the Blue Jays' offer was. But, Kevin, why are the Blue Jays going that deep on a shortstop when they got Bo Bichette here? Because he's left-handed. I mean, it's, re- it's a real simple answer for me. Now, uh, wh- how serious were they in on years and, and numbers? I, who knows? But yeah, it's, for me, the first thing that popped out of my mind was what you just mentioned there. What, shortstop? Would he really play shortstop here? Is, is he every day? Is he better off when he comes here to play third? Would he stay on the field longer? You know, we've, we've seen he's missed some games. Well, would that help him stay on the field if he didn't have to move around as much? If he if it wasn't crow hopping, trying to throw balls to first base? Now, <laughs> you know, he has won a World Series, and he is a really good shortstop, and he's a really, really good player when he's on the field. But, you know, I, 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 on the flip side of that, if you're Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and you're jumping out of pools and you're thinking, man, Jays are spending a ton of money, be afraid to save some of that for me. I, I know I, I need to get paid here real soon, too. It's I, How much do you really read into that? Like, I... The, the Trevor Story thing makes a lot more sense to me now. Mm. You know, does Trevor Story his number start with a three? Uh, you know, I, probably not. So that would make a little bit more sense. Now I know he has come out and said that he'd be willing on a good team to play third. Huh? The Blue Jays need a third baseman. Now he is right-handed. Can you have too many righties in the lineup? Now you could ultimately, if he comes in the mix, you could have. If you argue. You could have five all-stars in a row on your team, yeah. one through five in your order, and they're all right-handed. Would that matter? I that, that You could for probably me, fill in by getting a Michael Conforto or somebody like that. Get, yeah, if if you wanted one, to add that left-handed would hit, bat. Would he hit one through five in your order? Probably not. He's going to hit six not. or sevens. That's my point here is, you know, Michael Conforto has a little – he has a little bit of rebuilding when it comes to – you know, you got to have some confidence in, in where he's going to hit in your order and driving in runs and having a better approach against the shift. I know the shift last year really hurt, hurt Conforto. That's something he'll have to work on mindset-wise. It's not a physical mm. thing for me. You know, he's got bat-to-ball skills. He's got enough bat speed. It's that can you handle timeout and everybody moving to one side of the field. Now what do I do? It's it's that kind of thing. And, you know, I just don't know how much you read into that. It's it, The first thing that popped into my mind is he's left-handed. But that number started with three. I'll tell and, you what, and 10 years is a lot. I'll tell you what interests me in, about this is not necessarily the fact that it was Corey Seager, which I do find it interesting, by the way, that it was another Scott Boris Klein. And boy, oh boy, have times changed. There was a time when, 
Scott Boris Client, the Blue Jays, they weren't even going to bother. You had no chance of signing with the Blue Jays if you were a Boris nope. Client, not just because Boris wasn't going to direct you there, but because the Jays had a policy of they're not dealing with Boris Client. So that's an indication of, of, of how much things have changed. But what I took away from this, Kevin, is, all right, I don't know if they were willing to go to $300 million or whatever it was to get Corey Seager signed, mm-hmm. but if they're willing to spend a fair amount of money on Corey Seager... Now, you still got Carlos Correa out there. I've got to think the Jays, at least at least you call on Carlos Correa. But then I started thinking about Freddie Freeman. And, you know, we've, we've kind of heard these rumors connecting Freddie Freeman to the Jays. And, and I'm not going to get carried away by it with it. But, hey, if you're willing to spend that much money on a position player, what if you get a guy, another left-handed hitter who plays first base? Maybe you move Vladdy to third. A different issue, mm-hmm. I understand. But what I'm saying is... If this is the if, if if this is the depth of the water the Blue Jays are fishing in before yeah. the lockout, if this thing ends, do you think they're going to be back in those waters? They're you know they're going to be back in fishing in the deep end for the big boys. I think they are absolutely. That you have to ask yourself is you know uh, who would make more sense to your team? Who who would you rather have hitting in front of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Oof. Forget forget about what yeah. position he's playing. Who would you rather have hitting in front of him and behind George Springer? I mean, I would love Freddie Freeman. Okay, would you give? Okay, say Freddie Freeman's wanting six years. Say the Dodgers come to Freddie Freeman, and offer him seven years. Would you would you be willing to give him eight years? He's wanting around that thirty two, thirty three is the rumbling. Would you would you be okay giving him that? Or would you be Would you rather have him playing first and giving your team balance? The the people that I've talked to, sources I have around Vladimir Guerrero Jr. said he would be willing to play third. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's playing third. Bo's playing short. Freddie Freeman playing second. Who cares? He's playing second. Yeah, he, Freddie Freeman's playing first. So it yep. makes a ton of sense. It's more about adding balance to your lineup and making it tougher for an opposing pitch, opposing manager, and opposing pitcher to line up and get your team out. That that for me makes a ton more sense than bringing in a Carlos Correa or maybe Trevor Story. Now, it just seems like on the outside looking in, I don't know this for a fact, but it just seems like his his check is not going to be as big. Right. So you may take a rumbling at him, and and maybe he play third. He, he has came out and said he might take a run at playing third base on a good team. And and if, and if something happened to Bo, you would have Trevor Story to play shortstop, and then you could fill in that spot at third base. I, I to answer your question, that's long winded. You know, perfect scenario for me. I'm I'm making a serious run at Freddie Freeman. I'm saying I'm I'm going to Freddie's agent and I'm going final deal. I want it, and I can tell you if I'm going to go that mark or not. I had a uh, I had a chance to talk to an agent uh, about a week ago, and just uh, text exchange. It's a guy whose client client didn't sign with the Blue Jays, but he had some talks with the Blue Jays about him, and he said the the Blue Jays are interesting. They're very aggressive. Uh, he said they value players, at least as far as he could tell, he said they value players on the market the way all big market teams are valuing players. So he said they, they ain't cheap. But he said they're disciplined. And, you know, thinking back mm. to what we know about the Robbie Ray signing, we know that the Jays had five years. The, the Jays designated five years and $110 million for a starting pitcher. And it was basically... Kevin Gossman, you're going to take it before Robbie Ray. Robbie Ray, you're going to take it before Kevin Gossman. And Robbie Ray was, well, you know, I might need a little more money because of taxes. Jay said, okay, fine. See you. We're going to that. That's essentially what they did. Mm-hmm. We'll take Kevin Gossman. And, and this agent's point was the Jays are very aggressive, but they're disciplined. Like they're not going to get into a thing where, well, give us an extra $30 million because the taxes in Texas are this and the taxes in Ontario are this. And 
his point was, it was really interesting. The Jays are approaching teams and approaching, I'm sorry, are approaching players and basically saying, look, we've got a great city. We got money to spend. We've got a great young core. We'll kick the ass of teams in the American League East if you join us. I, yeah, we're we're a better choice than the other team. Well, wouldn't you love to know what the number would be? They'd be they'd be willing to but give it, a Freddie Freeman or a Trevor Story. No, the the Jays are being very they're and we saw this with Jose Barrios, right? The Jays understand that they are they might be a bit of a destination here, and they're being it's 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 an intriguing approach, something we haven't always seen from this team, and it'll, it'll be fascinating to see to see where it goes. But it certainly makes me want to. It certainly makes me. Man, get this get this damn lockout over. I want to see yeah. some more signings. I want to see some more trades. John Palmarosi says to keep an eye on Pete Walker, the Blue Jays pitching coach in the New York Mets hunt for a new manager. Now, we've been led to believe that it's Buck Showalter's job all along, that if he wants it, he Jacob takes DeGrom, it. Jacob DeGrom, Max Scherzer came out and said, you yeah, know, we'd exactly. like to have We also know, though, Kevin, and I think we're telling state secrets here, but if you talk to people around Pete Walker, they'll tell you that, Pete wants to manage at some point. And you know what? If I'm Pete Walker, I want to manage. Because the days are gone where, where well, you can't, you can't hire a pitching coach as a manager. No, no. Now the thing now is, are you comfortable with analytics? Are you comfortable with R&D? Are you comfortable with technology? Can you communicate? Well, then you can be a manager. And I don't know about you, man, but Pete checks all those boxes for me. Yeah, he does. Well, just getting back to the Mets job. Everybody that I've talked to that's around Petey, has said that Petey's in love with Toronto. You know, he know he understands they got a really good team. He understands that they can win a World Series next year. He wants to be a part of that. Now, he is a former Met. Uh, he lives in Connecticut. He fits the mold of a manager. He's exactly mm-hmm. what you just said. Mm-hmm. So the rumors make sense that you know he could take a run at the Mets job. But but I'd be shocked if if he left the Blue Jays because of just the reasons that I just mentioned uh, that he's you know he's invested here. Yeah. Like it would take a a the right situation. To the, to just push him in that in that you know where he wants to be the leader of an organization, the leader of a team. Now on the flip side of that, the way I know Petey, uh, just just me and I now I may be a little biased just because I've known Petey forever, and you know I, I think of him as a friend more than a pitching coach. Uh, there for me would be no better manager. He's a, he's a great communicator. He's mm-hmm. a great salesman, and first and foremost, he is a great talker for your organization. Which for me right now, anyway, when you're on your way up and you want to be that team forever. And when you're talking about the Mets, you talk about the Blue Jays, you talk about any team that's right there. Yep. He'd be one of those guys that you would you if you're an organization, you're an owner and you're a GM, you're a president, you would definitely have your his name on your list. I'll tell you what though, I gotta say this and I'm with you. I think Pete Walker will manage at some point. Um I, I have no doubts he'll manage at some point. I would certainly have no problem having him manage my team. But I don't know if I don't know if he and the Mets are a great match beyond the fact that he's a former Met and as you mentioned he lives in Connecticut. I that that job just seems to me to be and with all due respect to Pete, I don't think it's an entry level job. You you need somebody who experienced. Has, has has been experienced in managing in New York. It, it, if go. it's me, if I'm Pete Walker and things keep going the way they're they're going, I'm probably going to have my choice of a job at some point in the next four years. Now, the question, who knows what happens here, right? The question mm-hmm. is, the question is, what do I see as being the right environment for me? But, it, uh, I mean, John Paul Morosi's right. And I, I guarantee you, it's not going to be the last time we're going to hear Pete Walker's name 
connected to a job this year. I'll, I'll guarantee you that right now, that there will be other jobs where Pete Walker will be a candidate for manager. Uh, we mentioned that Jordan Romano will join us. He is, of course, the Blue Jays closer, like every other major league player. Jordan Romano is in a lockout situation right now. He's got to change his offseason routine. Got to figure out a way to work around some of these uh, some of these road bumps that are going to occur because you don't have access to a team facility. You don't have access to team coaches. Jordan Romano joins us now on Blair and Barker. Jordan, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. We, we trust that you're keeping well. Um, first thing I'll ask you, uh, we are in a lockout right now. I'm sure you're well aware of that. Initially, at least, what impact has that had on how you were going about preparations this off season? Yeah, guys, uh, thanks for having me on. And yeah, I guess uh, the biggest thing with, uh, I guess, the lockout was uh, I usually, you know, come down to Florida and, you know, I've been living here the past two off seasons just to train at the, the new Blue Jays complex. You know, it's, it's a nice, new, beautiful complex. We usually have the strength guys in there, our training staff in there. But uh, yeah, now we're locked out, so I can't use it. Um, that's probably like the biggest impact that this lockout has had, just not being able to use the facilities here. So what plans have you guys made to work out in the lockout? I know we had Danny Jansen on the show last week, and he was saying, hey, you know, he and Kevin Gossman have already talked about things, and there may be, I don't know, guys getting together to find some sort of facility they can use, or, uh, you know, maybe almost like a, just a camp with uh, maybe even guys from other teams, from other organizations who are in the area. How much talk has there been about that? Yeah, you know, I've definitely heard, uh, like, talks about that. I think especially when we get closer to spring training, you know, uh, pitchers are going to need to throw off the mound live to hitters, you know, so I'm sure that's going to, you know, all the guys in the area will probably meet up and do that. But uh, for right now, I'm just uh, – I'm working out in uh, my buddy's garage here, Justin Schaefer. Yeah, he, uh, he's with the Blue Jays in, in in 19, and I came up with him. So he lives in the Tampa area. So I'm coming up here in the garage, you know, just kind of grinding it out and lifting. Jordan, how how do you get your information if if you need something, if you need to know mechanically how this happens? You can't get information from a pitching coach with the Blue Jays. And you mentioned that the player development part of it, when you know, you go into Florida, you can't go there. So how, how would you get information if you do need it during this time? Yeah. You know what? Um, you know, me and uh, me and Matt Bushman, the bullpen coach, we, we just kind of talked um, along the lines of what the off is going to look like beforehand, you know, so we kind of ironed out the throwing program, you know, when I should start throwing off the mound, when I should start facing live hitters. So I have a plan and that's basically, that's basically it for, um, you know, as far as that goes. I mean, I guess if I need some fine tuning and stuff, I could reach out to players, but as for like the staff, we're not allowed to contact them. So, you know, we're kind of just on our own a little bit. Yeah. Can you fill in people that don't know this? Who who is the player rep for the Blue Jays? And after you tell us that, can, can you tell us if there's been information back and forth? Like, have you been asking this person questions? Have they been giving you answers? How's that been going? Yeah, so Stripling, uh, he, he's our guy that, uh, you know, talks with the union and kind of lets us know uh, what's going on. But, you know, for right now, like not a lot of information's coming out. It's just kind of, you know, we're we're locked out as of now. And, you know, hopefully negotiations can start up again soon. But whenever that may be, I'm I'm really not sure. 
Hey, Jordan, one of the impressions we're left with is the fact that Rob Manfred, the commissioner, came out and said, I don't want to miss any games. Uh, I think it's pretty clear players don't want to miss any games. I mean, I'm not going to get into the whole the whole leverage thing. But what I am getting at is that it seems right now as if everybody kind of agrees that they'd rather not they'd rather not miss games. I think there's an understanding that it's not a good look. There's an understanding that it could have, uh, you know, a, a, a negative, a long range negative impact on the game. Having said that, mm-hmm. how would you describe the player's mood from guys you've spoken to? Like, were, were guys prepared for this? Were guys surprised? Are guys confident? How would you describe it? Yeah, um, you know, I, I might not be the best guy to like talk about all this stuff, but these are just like kind of my opinions. And everyone I talk to, yeah, the you know, we definitely don't want to miss any games, right? And um, I think all the players, you know, we're feeling pretty good. We're feeling confident that, you know, we won't miss any time. And, you know, hopefully spring training goes on without a hitch. But, you know, again, I'm not even sure with that. So we're just hoping kind of, you know, this thing will be resolved. Everyone will be happy and, and playing games in no time. Jordan, well, you know, I know you've been paying attention to what the Blue Jays have been doing. Uh, well, what's your thoughts on that? You know, when you see them go out and spend the money that they've spent to make your team better, when you're sitting around and you see that pop up on your cell phone or on, across the bottom of the TV, what, what's your first thought? Well, you know, like just like growing up in, you know, the Toronto area, I've been a fan of this team for, you know, like 20 years. So seeing that, it's like first and foremost, my, my reaction first is just like as a fan, you know, it's like, oh, man, Jays are going to be really good this year. Uh, so it's awesome, you know, being a player and a fan of the team. Uh, it's cool just seeing guys, you know, signing Yimmy, uh, Gosman there. I mean, two premium premium arms, you know, kind of shows the front office is all in on on winning these next few years, and it's it's nice for a player to see that. Now, as part of that, of course, as part of the player moves, the Jays have lost Marcus Simeon and Robbie Ray, who were two pretty important pretty important people in that clubhouse, not just on the field, mm-hmm. but uh, but in the clubhouse. How do you think that is going to impact this team? Understanding that. We don't know what the final, what the 2022 Jays are going to look like. We won't know that until the CBA is finished and signings have been done and trades have been made and all that. But but right now, those are two pretty big-time personalities that aren't going to be there. How how do you think the club will react to those absences? Yeah, definitely. You know, Simeon and Robbie Ray, uh, MVP frontrunner and, uh, you know, a Cy Young winner. Those guys are really tough to replace and uh, tough to replace, you know, even in the locker room. You know, those were veteran guys. They, you know, Robbie helped me out a lot. Simeon, I know, helped out all the position players, just how we went about things. So, you know, those guys are really tough to replace. But, you know, with uh, with our new signings and, uh, you know, some guys are just going to kind of have to step into roles and, and hopefully succeed there. I would think that as someone who grew up around Toronto and, as you mentioned, was a Blue Jays fan, you must have been – it must have thrilled you to see what the reaction of the crowd was, what the reaction of the fans at the Rogers Center, uh, what the reaction was when the team came back here, when it finally got to Toronto. You know, we had Stephen Matz on our show earlier, and, and Stephen was talking about how he'd had a free agent call him up who was looking to come to Toronto. And this is after Stephen had, had signed with the Cardinals. And you know, he said, I, I mean, I, I sold him on it. I told him it was a it was a great environment. It was a great city. Of course, Pete Walker's name, as no surprise, was mentioned. But that's got to mm-hmm. feel kind of cool for you, right? Because there was a time. Remember, we used to say nobody wanted to go to Toronto. You have to give somebody an extra year and an extra thirty million for them to even look at you. Yeah. 
it's kind of remarkable how the, the, the view of this franchise has changed throughout the game, isn't it? Yeah, you know, um, especially just, just coming back to the fans, like it really was powerful. I wasn't expecting it to, you know, kind of impact me so much, but just playing there and, you know, just seeing how, like, how excited everyone was to have us back in town, you know, that was great. And like you said, I, I feel like the, uh, the conversations kind of shifted with the Blue Jays. I feel like it's a team where, you know, a lot of guys want to go now because they see that we're committed to winning. They see how young and talented we are. And I feel like this is, you know, a top destination for free agents as opposed to maybe in the past guys not wanting to come because of uh, taxes or cold or whatever it may be, new country. I think now we're, uh, you know, looking pretty attractive to these guys. Coming off an outstanding 2021, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't think that you think as yourself as a finished product, as a pitcher, especially in the ninth inning. And, you know, we saw you make some adjustments with the crouch and holding runners on. Is, is there one specific thing when you were flying home, driving home, that you were thinking to yourself, man, if I just do this, I tweak this little thing, I can be this much better of a pitcher late in games. Is there one of those situations for you? Yeah, you know, I think it always comes down to uh, strike throwing. You know, I mm-hmm. feel like uh, earlier in the season, you know, um, you know, I, I was getting by. Uh, I mean, I wasn't letting up a lot of runs, but I was, I was walking too many guys. I wasn't in the zone as much as I'd like to be. And I feel like later on in the season, I started throwing more strikes and having a few more quick innings, uh, a little less stress on the body. So I feel like uh, coming into this year, you know, if I could – you know, control the zone a little bit more. It's going to make it easier for me just on those back-to-back days. You know, maybe I'll be throwing a few less pitches, a little more durable for the season. So, you know, it all comes down to that, just controlling the zone, putting my pitches in the box. And I think if I do that, you know, I could have a good productive 2022. Yeah. Now for young people listening to what you just said there, the the first thing that would pop in their mind, at least the first thing that popped in my mind was how do you go about doing something like that? Is it mechanical? Is it, you know, tweaking things that you do between the times you go out and pitch? How how do you make little adjustments to throw more strikes? You know what? I think it's uh, just reps, you know, playing catch, uh, you know, working your mound work in between outings. I think it's all that. It's just maybe, taking it really serious, being intentional with your work, um, you know, not losing focus even in the game of catch that you play a hundred times you know, over the course of a hundred days. So I think it's just more intentional focus on when I'm on the mound and when I have a ball in my hand. And I think if I just do those intentional reps, you know, and really focus on that, I think it will translate into just, uh, you know, crisper, um, throwing more strikes. So I think that's just the best way to go about it for me. Jordan, we really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much. Uh, best of the holiday season. We hope you stay healthy, and uh, hopefully hopefully the CBA gets done soon enough that uh, we can start talking about, about the start <laughs> of spring training and, and some more players joining the team. We really do appreciate yeah. you doing this. Be well. Thanks, Jordan. Uh, thanks, guys. Kevin, it was interesting hearing uh, Jordan Romano talk about the approach he's taking this offseason. Again, for those who aren't familiar, because the game is in a lockout, players do not have access to club facilities. They cannot communicate with coaches or team officials of any description. There's, I mean, I, I, at one point, the fine for contravening those rules is something like 250000 It's It's, it's pretty hefty. Yeah. It, it's it's not going to happen. There has to be an incredible amount of trust between individuals for something like that to happen. Mm-hmm. So 
kind of on your own. I've got to think, Kevin, that the Jays, I'm sure they downloaded a bunch of stuff to these guys before the lockout. I'm sure there were plenty of discussions with folks like Pete Walker and Matt Bushman. Mm-hmm. It is interesting. He's working out with Justin Schaefer, who he knows from the minor leagues, a guy who's probably seen him. So maybe there'll be a little bit of feedback there. Justin can say, hey, I notice you're doing this. Hey, I notice, yeah, yeah. I notice you're doing that. But you made an interesting point. Uh, once you get close to spring training and you got to be on the mound and you got to start doing stuff you have to do in spring training to be successful. I mean, unless, unless the players rent a facility someplace, Mm -hmm. you're not going to have all those wraps. So all those, all those cameras and things that you would normally get at the, at at the complex. Yeah. Now just the things that Jordan have to do are not, are not big moves. Like he, he's, he has a big enough sample size that he's done well enough last year that it's not too far removed that he knows that if he does this, he can repeat this, that the outcome will be what he wants it to be, and he'll be getting the job done in the ninth inning. I, I, it just—it's interesting to hear him talk about growing up when it comes to refining what he does, just to allow him to throw strikes. One thing to throw a hundo; it's another thing to throw that for strikes. If you're not throwing it for strikes, big league hitters, what are they going to do? They're going to spit on it, and then they know that in fastball counts because you're a fastball thrower. We know he loves the slider. We know he's got two of them, but it's the ultimate—you know—the high elevated, high octane fastball, the elevated fastball with two strikes is getting ahead, maybe, maybe middle way to a lefty. If he can't do that early. Early in counts, and you can, you know, get back into the zone if you're a left-handed here. It gives you a better chance of getting the head out on a hundred. So I just think it's interesting to hear him talk about refining it, being simple with it, not overthinking it. He gets it down enough to that he can get the arm slot where he wants it. He can throw enough strides to be dominant, and that's what the ultimate goal here is: to be dominant, it's not to be good, to be dominant in the American League East. You made a point about holding base runners, and that was one of the things with the crouch. Mm-hmm. It's pretty easy to time that up if you're if you're in first base. And if you're a closer, there is a chance that you may be in a game and there may be a runner in first base. And when that happens, it's it's generally going to be in a one or two run lead. Is that is that something that you think needs to be a point of emphasis for the Blue Jays bullpen in general? I don't think so. I, I, I think it's because he's a he's a swing and miss guy. It's, do you really want him to slide step? Now, you, sometimes you're going to slide step late in the game. You may have a run, one run lead. Maybe you can't find the strike zone. And you walk a guy who can run, who can steal bases. Then all of a sudden, you got to work on holding the ball longer, doing things that hmm. before you actually kick your leg that would disrupt the timing of a base runner. It doesn't have to be when you kick your leg. I don't want him slide stepping. I want him with the giant leg kick. I want him sitting on his backside. I want him driving down the mountain as hard as he can because that's velocity. When we see the velocity at 94, 95, he's not Jordan Romano that's 98, 99, 100. I want him at that guy. So if it's just because of that leg kick and not having that slide step, why? that's what I said. The offseason hill for him, he just can't you know, revamp everything he hmm. does. You got to think about it. You got to think about the situation and who's on first. And, and if they run a lot, then you have to think about holding the ball a little longer, maybe getting him to step off, maybe getting the, the hitter to step out, disrupting it that way and not mechanically and not the mindset, the mental part of, you know, I still got to stay within myself. I still got to be me. I'm a swing and miss guy. So yeah, that's what I said. This for me is the hardest part of having this lockout is that little back and forth between Pete Walker and Jordan Romano of, do I do it? Do I have to do it? Should I do it? And I know they've already had these conversations, but it's different when you're on flat ground and you're out there working on it with your buddy and you actually want to hear feedback from your pitching coach, the guy that sees you more than anybody. That for me will be the interesting little, do I try and do it 
or do I wait until this thing's over so Petey can see me? Yeah, and I, I've got to think at some point, look, most of these guys are down in Florida. At, at some point, Danny Jansen, Reese McGuire, they're going to get together with everybody. And even if they don't have access to the facility, they'll find a place. They'll find a high school. This is what, this is what happened during previous lockouts. Guys find high schools, colleges. They find a way of getting together and and, and working if not not necessarily as a team, you know they may work with guys from other from other organizations. Again, there's a ton of folks around around the Tampa area. Mm-hmm. The Rays guys are there, Phillies guys are there, Jays guys are there. So I, I think you may see that. You may see kind of a almost like a uh, almost like a camp, a, a, a group camp where you have a bunch of different a bunch of different best, players from different teams. Best way to control a running game too, and you know this. You've watched a ton of baseball. Throw strike one. You throw strike one, that puts everybody at sort of a lull. Now they're mm-hmm. more det- waiting on the hitter to do something than to try and put pressure on defenses. So I just love the way he talks. He knows himself, and he knows what it takes to get it done. Sounds to me like a closer. That's, Absolutely. That's, well that's the only thing I can say. Sounds to me like a guy who's very comfortable, comfortable being a closer. When we talk about lockouts, most of the time we talk about owners and players. That makes sense because those are the two sides involved in the discussions. But what role does the agent play during a lockout or during a strike? Barry Axelrod is a longtime baseball agent. He's represented Jeff Bagwell, Craig Biggio, Jake Peavy, Matt Clement. He's also represented Arizona Diamondbacks general manager Kevin Towers. Does some broadcasters, Rick Sutcliffe, Mark Grace, Got some actors as well, Mark Harmon. He's done a lot in the industry. Barry Axelrod joins us next. This is Blair and Barker, the podcast on Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Welcome back to Blair and Barker, the podcast, the lockout chronicles, as we're calling it. And uh, hopefully you don't have to call it. Lockout Chronicles. So depressing when you say it out loud. We're not yet at the stage where anybody should be depressed about the lockout. We're, we're not, not yet. No, 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 no. And, uh, don't even bother starting the depression clock for a while yet. At least that's the way I'm looking at it. Man, you've changed. That's, no, that's, I've been down this road before, man. This is like I've covered baseball since 1989. I've seen these things. I have my own. I have my own inner labor clock. That runs, and there'll be a time where I'll start saying, "Okay, guys, you know, let's get this done. Let's get back to the table." Right now, I think we're kind of in that stage where everybody takes a step back, takes a breath, and then gets back at it. At least, I hope that's the case. Uh, that's how I feel about where we are right now with the baseball lockout. Um, I'm intrigued as to where our next guest thinks we are with it. He is. A longtime baseball agent. He's represented Craig Biggio, Jeff Bagwell, Jake Peavy, among others. He's also represented Arizona Diamondbacks general manager. I believe he did a stint where he was an advisor to the Diamondbacks themselves. He's got broadcasters, Mark Grace, and even represented some actors as well. He is Barry Axelrod. He is also host of a new podcast, Major League Beginnings. And we'll talk about the podcast in a minute, Barry. First of all, thanks. Thank you very much for joining us. Look, but before we delve into the specifics of an agent's role during a lockout, I just wanted to get your read on how we got to this lockout and how do you think we get out of it? 
Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Nice to talk to you guys. Uh, how many hours do you have to, uh, for me to answer that question? Uh, we can do it in point uh, form. Actually, make it, a, make it a lawyer's brief. How about that? Uh, I'll try. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's such a complicated process, and I've been through uh, – my first one was uh, representing some, some of the younger players uh, in, the, in the 76th uh, work stoppage, which was uh, a lockout, and all the way up through 95 uh, with, you know, some players that were well-established at that time as well as younger players. Uh, And all of them sort of take a different form, some of them very short, some of them very long, as we saw in 94, 95, and uh, actually in 81, where they they lost two months out of the middle of the season. but it, labor negotiations are very complicated, uh, much more complicated than most negotiations because they are overseen by the National Labor Relations Board. <clears throat> and if offers are made and then withdrawn or if certain things are said, uh, it can trigger grievances being filed before the NLRB, which has happened before in these types of negotiations. And uh, so they, they're very, always very careful about how they couch their proposals and what they say. And that leads to, you know, not getting things done quickly. Uh, so I think that's where we are now. There's been proposals made. I don't think any proposals have been, from what I've seen, uh, acceptable by either side. And, and a long way from being acceptable. But I think that's part of the process. My experience in the past through being involved in six of these, six or seven of them, is um, and it's frustratingly slow progress. And you're wondering, why in the world don't they just talk about this and get it done? Uh, it just Labor lawyers are different. They do it a different way. That's all I can say. Do, do clubs during something like this ever contact an agent uh, you know, sort of under the table, off the record kind of thing? Uh, officially, they're not allowed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in a lockout, or at least those are the provisions they set. Uh, and the union uh, also asked us, and we agents serve as representatives of the union. We're certified by the union. Uh, so officially, we're not supposed to have that, but there are certainly a lot of back channel conversations that go on. I've, you know, over the years of doing this, I've developed close relationships with general managers, owners, other front office people. And yeah, yeah, yeah there are conversations that go on uh, among experienced agents and people on the management side. Yeah, you, you, you uh, touched on it a little bit about young players, and, and the first thing that popped in my mind was missed paychecks. Is there agent and, and young players, is there, you know, a, a conversation back and forth of, you know, the agent sort of helps out in the way of, you know, you need to save a little bit more here, don't spend as much here. Is there a back and forth with, with agent and player when it comes to that? Uh, yes. Um, there used to be when we were having work stoppages every, you know, two, three, four years. There was a lot of conversation about that, uh, and the union actually builds up a war chest uh, intended to help out players who, uh, you know, can't make it through a work stoppage, and it's very real. I mean, I think as fans and media people, we all think about 
the superstars, you know, Max Scherzer and Mookie Betts and uh, Fernando Tatis making, you know, $30 million a year. But the, the vast majority of these players are making, you know, uh, within the range of, of, uh, uh, of the minimum. And, uh, you know, you get a young player who's, and I'm not going to try to minimize making a half a million dollars a year to play baseball. But some of, some of the young players don't even make that. The guys who are on the 40-man roster but have never been to the big league, some of those make far less than the minimum because uh, they're, they're still paid as minor leaguers. And they get to the point where they're going to miss paychecks and they start feeling the pressure. You know, maybe a young guy signs his first big league contract and, you know, buys a house, buys a new car for his wife or, you know, has these expenses. Uh, and uh, they, they start feeling the pressure uh, pretty quickly once paychecks are starting to be missed. Yeah, do do players like that need to buy insurance, uh, you know, in case they were to get hurt during uh, unofficial workouts? Uh, that's been done, but it's really expensive. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, it's, you know, the, the idea is they should be very careful during these workouts mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I think I think it's a factor that clubs look at. They, I think, in the Max Scherzer case, they they did not complete the deal before the deadline, before the lockout started. So he's not he's still not official. I don't think there's three or four people in that category. And so then you get into okay, you're working out on your own. You're not supervised by your by your club's training staff. Uh, you know, you better be pretty careful about what you're doing. In conversation with Barry Axelrod on Blair and Barker. Barry, when do players start to get antsy? And how, how, how difficult is it for an agent or the Players Association to kind of ensure discipline, right, as we get closer to spring training? Um, you know, I think, I think for people involved in baseball, there's, there's, it's, it's like a shortstop that picks up a ground ball and you have this internal clock about who's running. Is it a is it a, a big catcher or is it Trey Turner, you know, running the first? They've got this internal clock. Well, I think I think baseball people have an internal clock, whether it be players, agents, management people, or whoever. Uh, you know, hey, it's time for baseball to start again. You know, it's February 15th. We're supposed to be, and, and you know, pitchers and catchers reporting and workouts beginning and, and, and spring training games starting. I think I think when that clock runs and it's time to be playing baseball again or be back with your teammates and uh, and back at your spring training facility, I think antsiness really ramps up at that point. Uh, right now, for guys, there's nothing different than the norm. You know, it's the off season, but I think people get antsy then, and it's very difficult. I think you touch on something that. Uh, people don't realize the uncertainty of it. Like how long is this going to go on and are we going to miss games and are we going to miss paychecks? And, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough time. And uh, for, from an agent's point of view, there's a lot of time spent on the phone, you know, with, Hey, have you heard anything? What's new? Has the union contacted you? Have they told you anything? And the union's role is, trying to uh, maintain solidarity, which I think that's another point. Uh, Somebody made the point to me that uh, the 25 years of labor peace that we've had actually works against union solidarity 
because it used to be back in the day when there were work stoppages on a more frequent basis, the older players <clears throat> would talk to the younger players and say, hey, we got to hang together. We know this is tough, but uh, this is, you know, guys who came before us did this and we're now benefiting from it. And now we have to do this to benefit guys that are coming along. Well, there's nobody left around to tell younger players that. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, they, uh, uh, you know, there's no historical perspective of that uh, from players so that uh, having that veteran holding the clubhouse together and holding the team together, uh, I, I hope those guys exist. I hope they're out there and have the sensibility to do it. But uh, I'm, I'm, that's going to be hard, I think, for the unions. Now, I, in a recent interview you did in the San Diego Union-Tribune, you talked about salary arbitration and free agency as kind of the, I, I'm going to borrow a phrase, you know, Hill's players would be willing to die on, that those are, the, those are sort of the, the third rails. I mean, pick your, pick your cliche uh, for players in negotiations. But I, clearly for a deal to be made, there has to be some sort of give. And, and I don't want to, again, you're right, we could take hours to talk about this, but I, I am wondering, Barry, is there is there a way for the players to give on these two core things without necessarily hurting themselves? Not much room, I would say. And, and uh, you know, the question that I was asked by, uh, by Tom Krasovic, who wrote that article, was, you know, where would players... You know, where, where do you lay down on the tracks? Where do you draw the line? Uh, you know, players probably don't really understand or care much about the, uh, the, the issues of competitive balance or how revenue sharing is, is going to work or where the thresholds are. You know, the, the, the rank and file, that's not what affects them. At least they don't see how that affects them directly. If you start minimizing their salary arbitration or free agency rights, they feel that and they know it and they know that that will affect them directly. And that's where they stand and fight, I think. So uh, historically, there's only been once when uh, the, the free agency or salary arbitration rights have been diminished in any way. Uh, and that was, I believe, in 87 when they went from two-year eligibility for arbitration to three-year eligibility for arbitration. And that was a war. That was really a fight. And obviously, we as agents were very opposed to that because that was taking a significant right away from our, our clients. If you were Trevor Story's agent, would you be worried the longer this goes on uh, when it comes to his market? Um. I don't think so. I'm not that worried. I'd probably rather have a deal in place. Uh, but, um, you know, anytime you have an unsigned player, it's worrisome. Uh, and because the players worry uh, more than if a guy is signed to a multi-year deal. Uh, Trevor Story is probably more worried right now than Corey Sager is. Uh, but I, I think he'll get his at, at, when the time comes. Barry, uh, you know, among your many roles in the game, you also, I believe you also worked as an advisor in the Diamondbacks front office. I know you represented uh, Kevin, Kevin Towers. I'm just kind of wondering, what type of insight did this give you into 
how owners and teams think. And because I sometimes think that we as reporters and fans, sometimes we underestimate the tensions within ownership, right? And I've had people tell me that, hey, I mean, yeah, I can get contentious when owners and players are in the same room, but you got to go into a meeting where there are seven or eight owners if you want to see. I mean, it can get contentious among that group as well. Do we underestimate how hard it is for a commissioner, be it Bud then or Rob now, to kind of keep that group together? Um, yes, I think so. Uh, I, I was once asked during one of these work stoppages by um, someone in the media, uh, among ownership, how many factions did I think there were? And my response was 30. Uh, they're all, they're all um, on their own island in a sense. Uh, you know, how, how, are, how are the Yankees in the same boat as the Kansas City Royals in terms of revenues and market size? And, you know, the, the disparity among owners is pretty great. And I think that was one of the, the talents that Bud Selig had. Uh, I didn't agree with everything he ever did, but he was very talented at keeping ownership solid. You know, uh, uh, all 30 of them would vote unanimously for whatever issue he put in front of them. I don't know that that Rob has been able to hold that solidarity together as much as Bud did, but I guess time will tell. But I think your point is is very well taken that that there is the disparity among the owners. I think that. I always compare the NFL to Major League Baseball. The difference being, I think the union in baseball has more solidarity than the union in the NFL. And I think ownership in the NFL is more solidly together because they are truly partners and sharing all their TV revenue and everything equally than the ownership does in Major League Baseball. So when do we as baseball fans and observers start worrying about opening day? You talked about everybody's got kind of an internal clock. What's what's Barry Axelrod's internal setting for opening days in Jeopardy? Uh, I think if there's any if there's any optimism to be had here, um, there are two things that I think are in play. One is historically uh, in work stoppages, there has never been a a regular season game lost due to a lockout. All regular season games lost have been due to strikes by the players. So to me, that means owners are really in charge of when we're going to go back and, and, and start up again. And I think the second part of this equation is that the, the 2020 season with all the losses suffered by COVID through COVID as a result of what went on there. Uh, I think that, you know, has burned into recent memory how devastating it is to lose a part of a season for both owners and players. So I would expect that we'll probably edge up the spring training or maybe miss a little bit of the start of spring training and then get it done so that there aren't any missed games during the regular season. Barry, thanks so much for your time today. Before we let you go, uh, tell us a little bit about Major League Beginnings, the the podcast that you and some folks are involved in. Uh, well, this is another COVID-related uh, project. Uh, uh, one of my, my great clients and great friends is Mark Sweeney, who uh, had a long career, 14 years in the big leagues, mainly as a pinch hitter. He's 
he's a good trivia question answer. He's the second all-time leading pinch hitter behind Lenny Harris uh, in Major League history. But uh, Mark and I are, are real good friends, and we would talk. And there were times, uh, there was one time maybe 10 or 12 years ago when he was talking about uh, when he got called up and how that was and who told him and who he called and talked about it and, and who he ran into and told a story about you know, the team being on the road when he arrived. I think they were in New York, and he was with the Cardinals. And Ozzie Smith grabbed him and said, hey, you know, we got a dress code here. Come on, I'm going to buy you a suit. And Ozzie Smith took him out, you know, the veterans that helped when he first got there. So I said, you know, everybody's got a story like that. We started saying we should do a book, you know, interview 20 or 30 guys. And we never did it. We're not authors. And so we, when COVID hit, and I was invited to do a podcast on a, a different podcast. And I really had fun with that. And I thought, you know, this would be a perfect format for that idea of these guys telling their stories. So that's how Major League Beginnings came about. Uh, you know, we talk about we talk about a lot of things. Guys tell their stories about their careers. But uh, one part of it is always, you know, tell us your story about when you got your first big league call up and, who, who told you and how did they go about telling you and all the elements of it. And I think people really enjoy hearing the stories and we've had a lot of fun doing it. Well, Barry, listen, uh, we really do appreciate you joining us. Terrific insight. And uh, you've helped, I think, uh, put things in, uh, in good perspective for us. Thanks so much. Uh, best of the holiday season. Stay safe and we'll chat again. Thanks a lot. Thank you, and I hope we're not talking about this again in April or May. <laughs> yeah, no, me, me as well, Barry. Take care, my friend. <laughs> All right, thank we'll you. Bye-bye. That is Barry Axelrod, a longtime player agent. Um, and he was a, you know, Greg Biggio, uh, Jeff Bagwell. He he was, he had some big names. Yeah. And, you know, Kevin, those those guys, I mean, he's right. The agents do work for the union. I mean, the agents are the agents work for the player. They're certified by the union. So clearly, if you pick a side, you know what side they're they're going to be on. But there is a role if you do it right. If you're not a fly by night guy, if you do it right, then you do have a role as an agent in helping maintain. I hate using the word discipline, but helping mm-hmm. maintain that discipline or that sense of unity that the players association needs to get to get something done. And Barry made a great point. And this is something I haven't hit on, but as a big believer that history, especially when it comes to things like labor negotiations, history really does can give you hints about what's going to happen. That's a great point he made. We've never lost a regular season game because of a lockout. Keep in mind, lockouts are initiated by ownership. They're not initiated by the players. So the fact that we have never lost a regular season game for a reason other than a strike, that would suggest to me that ownership is controlling, I'm going to borrow a football cliche, mm-hmm. ownership's got the ball. They're controlling the ball. And the question is, right now, are they willing to settle for a field goal yeah. or do they need to go all the way for a touchdown? And And ultimately it will be, I think it will be ownership that decides when this is over. Well, they locked the players out. You know, the players didn't leave. It was it was the owners wanting to speed this up and get the conversation moving in the right direction. So I think you got to give them credit a little bit for that. But it's the, the, the agent part of it. And whenever I was listening to Barry talk about, you know, what, what his role in is, is, 
and all of this. When I had an agent when I was a player, he was there to listen to me. Every, every once in a while, you just need somebody to yell at. And this is one of the times for me you would think that players would call people that they trust and an agent, right? He, he's helping you get checks, mm-hmm. helping you get money. That who, who else would you rather trust than somebody like that besides your family? He's one of the guys that you would call, at least I did whenever I went through things. I got sent down and I wasn't being treated the way I thought I should be treated. You know, my agent was the person that I called and yelled and screamed at, and, and they listened. And I think that's – to Barry's point of all the things that go into just being, we always talk about the, the rich people and, and what they're going through. Whoa, is me. It's the little people. It's the, it's the guys that I talked about the insurance. That, that's a small thing of it. Mm-hmm. But if you're on the bubble, you're the 27th, 28th guy, and you're, you know, up and down, and you may not even be on a team when this, when this all gets going. What are you thinking? You know, you have to think about your family first and, and just the thought process of, you know, you have an agent to call and go, you've been through this before. What do I do? Do I need to do this? Is this a part of it? And just a little part of when we had Jordan on a little bit before this, when he was talking about what he was going to do during the lockout, and then you hear Barry talk about, you got to be careful. <laughs> you don't want to be getting hurt because all the things that might go into being and getting hurt. So, And we also don't know. He, he made an interesting point. All, all these contracts that were signed, we don't know how many of them actually got done the paperwork got filed and everything, and, and and the insurance and everything got done before before the lockout hit. I mean, we still don't know whether or not Justin Verlander is really with the Astros. Justin Verlander may be a free agent. We don't know. Yeah, I mean, his brother said he signed with the Astros, but the Astros, as far as I know, haven't said anything. Major League beginnings. For those of you who are uh, new to, to Kevin Barker's career, who told you you were called up? First time to the majors. Gary, How did that come Gary, about? Gary, Gary Allenson called me. Uh, it was after a game in Norfolk. It was late at night. Triple A, uh, right? It was a triple A. Uh, it was when I was with the Brewers. Uh, he called me. I would say it was like one thirty, and I got to be honest with you, I hung up on him. And anybody that knows <laughs> Muggsy, you know he 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 don't like that. He he's uh, no. he's swirly. He, he he frowns on you hanging up. And and actually, I did, I hung up on him twice because you know when I was I was little, I was in that young sort of making myself into the player that I wanted to make myself into. And you get picked on a lot. And you get mm-hmm. you, you get picked at. And I'm I'm on the bubble. You know, people know Dude, when you you're playing up, with you somebody. You showed up in spring training with a car that said first. First base with Absol- a license plate that said first base. Come on. <laughs> Absolutely. And then I hung up on my manager two times and then he called me back the third time, third time and said, don't hang up on me again, mate. And so, and then I knew when he said that, that who it was and it was for real. And, you know, a lot of things go through your, your through your head at that time. And then, you know, I, I can remember calling my father and my mother picking up and they're both on the line at the same time. And it's like three 30 in the morning. And I can remember my mom saying the first time what's wrong. Cause I never call it three 30 in the morning. So she's first thing she's like, mom, <laughs> she's thinking something's gotta be wrong. Right. So that's the first thing that comes out of her mouth. And I say, there's nothing wrong. You know, it's, it's a great time for the Barker family. I just got called up and we all three had a good cry and, you know, it was it was one of the best times of my career. So it was, you know, it's this is this is part of it. But on the flip side of it, and then you're starting to talk about lockouts and all the unknowns. Look, I've been a part of a lot of unknowns. That being that guy on the bubble, being that 28th guy, not that 27th guy. How how are you going to make a living? How, how are you going to pay your bills? How are you going to eat? You know, all those things. Because he said it. A lot of the guys that are on the bubble don't make tons of money, and every paycheck matters. And if you start missing checks. What do you do? So there's a lot of things going into your mindset, and, and you have to plan. And that's one thing that I didn't do, and I wish I would have done earlier in my life and early in my career, is plan better. And these guys hopefully will do this, and they'll take care of their family first. 
All right, here's what we're going to do. Going forward, we are going to uh, solicit viewer, viewer, listener questions for Kevin Barker in uh, in our next podcast. We're going to call it, I don't know, we're going to call it Backleg City or something like that. We'll come up with something witty. That's pretty good. It is. The podcast drops every Thursday. So every Wednesday, I'm going to send out a tweet. And my Twitter handle is SN Jeff Blair. Keep my DMs open. And it'll be a way for you, the listener, to ask Kevin Barker questions. Not going to be Jeff Blair. It's going to be Kevin Barker. I may jump in every now and then to correct grammar and things of that nature. But it's questions for Kevin Barker. You can talk about Barker's career. You can talk about baseball. You can talk about rules, player moves. You want to talk about outdoors. All of that stuff. It's going to be Back Lake City, the mayor of Back Lake City, Kevin Barker. It's going to be like his his city council meeting. You all are going to be counselors, and you're going to get to ask Kevin Barker a question. I will simply be the person passing on those questions. So keep that in mind. Every Wednesday, I'll send out a tweet. Follow me on Twitter. DM me with the questions. We'll deal with it. That's it for this week. You've been listening to Blair and Barker, the podcast on Sportsnet 590, The Fan.